0: Um, So as we jump into our time of teaching, two things. First, if you open up your program, inside you're going to find a green and white message note sheet, which is always a great tool to help you follow along with the teaching or to jot down anything the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to remember. Second thing, I want to give you a heads up. So I currently have the flu, and the reason why I share this is I wanted to give an explanation as to why I'm going to be sweating profusely, coughing up a lung, or trying harder than usual not to fall off the stage. However, like I told the nine o'clock service, I did get to go see my doctor. He loaded me up on a on a bunch of great prescription medicines. I am hopped up right now, so this may end up being a really fun service as we go in. Uh, Before we uh, jump into our time, let's go to the Lord together. Father, we are here as your people, and we are ready to listen. Father, as we go into these two weeks where we talk about silence. And many of us, if not all of us who are Christ followers, will say that there's been a time in our lives, a season in which we feel like we've experienced silence from you. Father, what an amazing truth that we're about to uncover, that in those periods, you are anything but silent. Father, what happens often is that our view of your response is often too narrow. And so what we need to do is we need to learn a new way to listen. We need to expand our view of you and to see in a bigger picture how God speaks, how how God's voice reaches his people. And so, Father, whatever we brought in with us, we want to leave it aside. We want to listen to you. We want to listen to your word in particular with a humble heart, with an openness, and with a readiness to obedience. Father, as I often pray, let me as the communicator become much, much less. And let you as our Jesus, our King, the Christ himself, let you become much, much more. We commit this time to you, Lord, and we are expectant of big things because you are a big, big God. In your son's name, all of God's people said... So in a couple of weeks, we're going to be kicking off a brand new series that I'm really excited about, and that series is going to be called Unfiltered. Now what this, that series is going to be, it's going to be a long study in one of the most important books of the New Testament, but also one of the most important books of the entire Bible, the Gospel of Matthew. Now the intent of that series is to look at Matthew's Gospel and to gain an accurate and a biblical view of who Jesus is actually is. And one of our primary tools as we go through that series is going to be teaching Matthew with context. I often say, as people are learning to understand the Bible, that context is king. Context means not assuming how I would have responded, but learning how those people actually responded to the life and teachings of Jesus. So as we teach through the Gospel of Matthew, we're gonna be taking the time to lay out how would a first century Jew or a first century Gentile, how did they, how did their culture react and respond to Jesus and what he was doing? Now, with that being being said, that leads us to why we're doing this two-week miniseries. See, one of the most important pieces of context we can gain for the gospel of Matthew is to understand the world that we are stepping into as Matthew begins. Because as we look at the world that we leave at the end of the Old Testament and look at the world we step into at the beginning of the New, we see that they are radically different. And so to illustrate this, let me use something that is very near and dear to my heart, Star Wars. And so, as I talk about this, if you've ever seen the original Star Wars, A New Hope, I'm about to spoil it, but you've had 80 years to watch this movie. So... At the end of A New Hope, what has happened? Well, the good guys blew up the Death Star. The bad guys are losing their power. You have that famous throne room scene. Do you remember that imagery where Princess Leia is handing out medals? And what is everybody doing? The good guys are smiling. They're on top. Life is good, right? Now, based on that, my expectation would be that in a sequel, we would find them in the same place, smiling, life is good, what could go wrong? But yet, when we go to the next Star Wars movie, The Empire Strikes Back, which is not only my favorite out of all the Star Wars movies, but probably one of my favorite movies of all time. The opening crawl, you know, those opening words in the Star Wars movies, the very first sentence tells us that there's a radical difference. It says that it is a dark time for the rebellion. And pretty soon into this movie, what do we see is that their world has changed dramatically. That the good guys who were riding high are now one step away from being destroyed. That this evil empire who has losing power has somehow gained much more of it When we look at the Empire Strikes Back, we realize two things really quickly. One, time has passed since we last entered this world. And two, stuff went down. And the reason I share this is because that's very much how it is between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. See, when we leave the Old Testament What we see is that for much of the latter part of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was conquered and under Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian Empire banished them from their land, destroyed their temple. And near the close of the Old Testament, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persian Empire. Now still not the best place to be, but what the Persian Empire did differently was it allowed the nation of Israel to begin restoring their life of worship. We see through books in the Old Testament such as Ezra or Nehemiah that the people of God, the Jewish nation, were allowed to return to their land. We see that they were allowed to rebuild their temple. We see that they are now unifying together as they are restoring worship. The Old Testament ends with, on a note of hope for the people of God. And then we open up Matthew's gospel, the beginning of the New Testament, and what we see immediately is a radically different world. See, now the people of Israel are not living under the regime of the Persians, but they're living under a new oppressive regime by the Roman Empire. See, the the Jewish nation that had begun unity when we last left them had now developed different political and social parties that were fighting amongst each other for power. Matthew, the first book in our New Testament, which originally was written specifically to the Jewish people, was not written in the Jewish language of Hebrew, but in what was now the common language of the world, Greek. And finally, the promise of the Messiah, the message of the one to come. See, the Holy Scriptures have prophesied over and over that a Messiah would come to eternally save his people. And when we open the world of the New Testament, we see that the message of the Old Testament, the Messiah, had become distorted. It had become polluted. It had become small. And the big question happens, what happened between the Testaments? See, a lot of people, frankly, aren't aware of this, but in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a significant gap of time, 400 years to be exact. And that intertestamental period, as Michael mentioned in the video, is often called the silent years by many. And there's two key reasons why. One, it's referred to as the silent years because in those 400 years, a new prophet in the Old Testament, the Lord would call men and women to be his prophet, his spokesperson, to be his words to his people. A new prophet was not raised. Also in those 400 years, while they did have a completed Old Testament, a new written word of God was not added until the New Testament. But a second key reason why many refer to it as silent years was for the people living throughout those centuries, those were tumultuous and difficult years many of them found themselves in the posture of going to the Lord, of seeking his leading, of seeking his deliverance, and they felt that the response was silent. And in fact, that now makes this intertestamental period amazingly relatable to us, doesn't it? See, many of us who are Christ followers, if not all of us in this room, have you experienced a time or a season in your life in which you've gone to the Lord, in which you've sought him for guidance or leading in your life or for a major decision, in which you've sought his wisdom with something going on in your life, in which you've sought relief or provision or you sought a lifting of fear and you feel that the response the Lord gave you was silence. Emotionally, how do you feel in those situations? It's unsettling, isn't it? And it raises a difficult question. We ask the question, why is God not speaking in my life? Where is his voice? And the reason why we're going to take a good look at this intertestamental period is because in these 400 years, there is a beautiful truth. And that is that in the perceived silences of our life, God is anything but silent. And so what we're going to see is that in these times, there's a cautionary tale, but there's also an opportunity. If we want to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives, there are times when we, not, we don't hear it because our expectation of his answer is very narrow. If we want to hear the voice of the Lord, then we need to learn a new way to listen to what he's saying to us. And so with that, what I want to do is I want to briefly jump into some of the history about this time. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Between the Testaments. And so this is, before we jump into it, two quick notes. One, this is a period that the Bible does not talk about or talk about in detail. There's some prophecies in Daniel and so our sources for this are other ancient literature, ancient historians, and ancient writings. But the second note I want to do as we go over this briefly is I'm trying to give you I'm trying to give you an, a basic understanding of the main storyline going on. But understand what I'm giving you is barely scratching the surface of what took place in between those testaments. We're talking about 400 years of history. I get that I'm long-winded, but even I don't have a desire to be here for hours upon hours. And so what you'll notice if you study this time on your own is there are key people, there are key events, there are key kingdoms that I am not including again because I'm just wanting to scratch the surface on the smallest of scales. So with that being said, you ready to jump in? So there on the front, as we dig into these 400 years, the first thing I've listed out is Persian rule. Again, I mentioned this is where we leave the Old Testament, so I'm not going to talk more about this. The big changes start happening on the second Roman rule, Roman numeral, as we go into what's called Greek rule. And so for this, I'm going to start by talking about someone you might remember from high school history named Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander came into power when he was about 19 or 20 years old. And at a young age, what Alexander does, did is he conquered the known world at the time, which included the region of Palestine. Now, as Alexander conquered the known world, what he also did to, to maintain power and strategy is he introduced something, and I've indicated in our note sheet, called Hellenization. See, what Hellenization is was to introduce Greek ideas, Greek culture, Greek morality, and Greek values into a non-Greek world. See, Alexander did not set out to stop the Jewish people from worshiping their God, but he believed that his culture was superior, so he sought to give them an alternative, so to speak. And so Alexander did this in two key ways. One, in conquered territories, what he would do is he would, found, he would establish cities or colonies to be a hub of Greek culture, to give people access to what he saw as the superior culture. The second way that he Hellenized the conquered world was he introduced in a written and verbal form the Greek language to eventually become a universal language. Now, if you think about it, if you've spent any time studying ancient Greece, there are some spectacular things we can learn from Greek culture. They were brilliant in many areas when you look at Greek architecture, when you look at philosophies and science and art, there were many brilliant things But at the same time, when you also take a look at Greek culture, you see that there was much depravity in their morality. Their view of God's, their view of sexuality, their view, the way they treated people they thought as less than. They had a very low view of children and women in particular. And so the danger of Hellenization is that it looked appealing, but but it was tempting because it was leading the people of God away from the lifestyle of God. And so as we continue... Alexander died at age 33. There, post Alexander on your notes. Legend states that Alexander drank himself to death because he mourned that there were no more worlds to conquer. And after Alexander died, his empire fell into chaos. See, Alexander did not have an heir. And so what ended up happening is that his four top generals were divided, his empire amongst them. But the four of them weren't satisfied with having a fourth of the empire. They wanted the entire empire as Alexander had it. And so what began was we went from a period of relative stability to a period of warfare as the generals fought over and over the known world. There in your note sheet, I put one of the many examples, but this involves, the region of Palestine that we're studying. So the generals Antigonus and Ptolemy Soter. So for five years, They specifically fought over the region of Palestine and the city of Jerusalem. And within these five years, they traded leadership and ownership of the region. And what happened in these five years is that the more they fought, the more the region was turned to rubble, and the more the people of God were destroyed and struck down. But also in a post-Alexander world, the chaos began to happen amongst the Jewish nation itself. See I mentioned as Hellenization was introduced, it started to become popular and it created a bit it created a big uh, argument and two different factions among the Jewish nation. The first was a faction rose up called the Hellenist or Hellenistic Jews in jesus 's time. We encounter them as well now they were what we would call liberal Jews. they probably wouldn't say that they were abandoning Yahweh completely, but what they wanted to do was they wanted to take parts of their faith and combine it with Greek morality and values and culture. And as a response to them, another faction rose up, which I've put on your note sheet, and they're called the Pharisees. If you're familiar at all with the gospel accounts of Jesus, you've heard of the Pharisees. You know that they are often some of his primary antagonists for him and his followers in this time of ministry. See, the Pharisees started as a response to the Hellenists. See, the name itself means to separate. The intent of the Pharisees was they did not want to have foreign influence on their traditions and on their religion. So they were going to protect it from foreign influence at all costs. Now, that sounds noble and heartfelt, right? But what we see throughout history with the Pharisees is they made the same mistakes that the Hellenists did, meaning that they turned away from Scripture, See, what happens is not only did the Pharisees turn away from teachings of Scripture such as grace and love, but they began to become legalistic because they began to view God's teaching and saying, you know what, that's not enough. God is going to get us some of the way there. But if you really want to be holy, if you want to be spiritual, it's up to us to fill in the blanks that God left. God is not conservative enough for us. So they began to introduce their oral law, their written law. And by the time we get to the time of Jesus, the teachings of the Pharisees were considered as valuable, if not more valuable than the written word of God itself. Do you see a theme in both parties? That the mistake is the abandonment of God's holy word. See, hang on to that, because I'm going to come back to that later. But something powerful that did happen through God's word uh, during that time, post-Alexander, there in your note sheet, is what's called the Septuagint, See, what ended up happening was the Hebrew Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, was eventually fully translated into Greek. If you think about by the time we get to Jesus' time and beyond, to the time of the Apostle Paul, what that meant was now the message of God, the message of the Messiah, the message of hope and salvation could be read by the Jewish people, but could also be read and spread to the rest of the world as well. So then from there, we're going to fast forward quite a bit and your third Roman numeral is what we call Jewish revolt and independence. And so I'm starting here by talking about a ruler named Antiochus. Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Now this guy was a piece of work. There are some historians that refer to him as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. And let me explain a little bit about why See, as he controlled Jerusalem and the region around it, there was a point in his life when he went to Egypt to deal with some business there. And somehow a false report spread out of Egypt back to Jerusalem that Antiochus had died in battle. And so the response of the people in Jerusalem, the response of the Jewish nation was they rejoiced. Because this monster had died. And not only did they rejoice, but they were emboldened and bounded together and overthrew the local leadership he had placed in Jerusalem. Well, word of this made it back to a very living Antiochus. And he was definitely not pleased. And so he returned to Jerusalem with one goal in mind, and that was to completely destroy the Jewish faith. And so he did this in a number of ways. One, he came and he retook Jerusalem. But how he retook Jerusalem was he sent in his truth and he slaughtered the people. The second thing is he banned the Jewish nation from doing anything that was culturally or scripturally Jewish. So for example, if you were Jewish parents, you were legally banned from circumcising your sons. If you were a Jewish family or Jewish individuals, you were legally banned from observing the Sabbath. With that, what he then sought to do was to separate the Jewish people from the word of God itself. He created many burnings of the scriptures and he made it a capital offense if you were found in possession of a copy of it. And finally, to the Jewish people, one of the most atrocious things he did was he took their most revered place, their temple, and he defiled it. What he did as a foreign leader is that he walked into the temple. He walked into the holy of holies itself. And on his way, he destroyed the scrolls of the ancient scriptures. And inside the Holy of Holies, there was an altar meant for the high priest to sacrifice a sin offering to God. And what Antiochus did was he took a pig, an animal that in Jewish culture is seen as unclean. And in Jewish belief, unclean equals ungodly. He puts the pig on the altar, slaughters it, takes the flesh, takes the blood, spreads it throughout the Holy of Holies and defiling it, making it unsuitable for worship. But you know what's amazing about the people of God is that throughout history, there have been many people that have tried to eradicate us, and through the strength of God, we have continued to survive. What Antiochus didn't expect was that his actions caused a new passion and revolt to eventually come up. The rebellion started slow. But they eventually picked up steam. As we fast forward there in your note sheet, one of the most famous leaders of these revolts was a man named Judah or Judas Maccabeus. Not his last name, but a nickname, which means hammer or the hammerer. And so what he did was he led a group of people called the Maccabees, Jewish leaders who were committed to obeying the scripture of God, who were committed to restoring worship. And so what they did is they gathered the Israelites together. They gathered them together to go into battle against an evil empire. Now understand something. This is as ragtag group of an army as can be. To use a modern phrase, every time they went into battle, they were outclassed and out gunned. They were the overwhelming majority, but yet in years' time, they not only kept winning battles, but they overthrew the, lead, the oppressive leadership. They retook Jerusalem, and six and a half years to the day of the defilement of the temple, they repurified it. That's where we get the celebration of Hanukkah the most famous symbol of that, the lighting and the menorah and the miracle of the lights, but the candles to symbolize the repurification and the rededication of the temple. And so temporarily, for the first time in a long time, the Jewish people worshipped free of foreign domination. Now, one last note I want to make in that period of history. You're going to see there an interesting note. It seems kind of banal at first, but that one of the high priests eventually made a treaty with the Senate of Rome. They were expecting an attack from Syria, so they asked Rome to protect them if that happened. The reason I noted that there is this now brings Rome into the narrative of this region of the world, and that leads us to the next numeral, which is Roman rule. As we fast forward past the time of the Maccabees, There were those that clung to the scriptures and the worship of God, but there were those that turned away from it, that allowed corruption to come into their lives. And so what ended up happening was civil war was breaking out again amongst the people of God, but not just was civil war breaking out amongst them, but foreign powers wanted the region of Palestine, wanted the city of Jerusalem in particular, so there was much fighting going on around them. And in fact, the fighting around for the city of Jerusalem, for the region of Palestine, had become so fierce that these foreign powers went and appealed to Rome to say, Rome, help us take this land. And Rome responded by taking it for themselves. So there in your note sheet, I lay out General Pompey who had been stationed in the area of Damascus, what he did is he went and took Jerusalem again, like many leaders before him, with terrible slaughter. They pillaged Jerusalem, and now the region of the world, the region of Palestine, is under Roman rule, which explains to us when we get to Jesus' time why the Romans were in charge. And they put the Ro- a Roman procurator over that region, and he decided to make two of his sons keep kings of Palestine. One of his sons became the king of Galilee. The other son became the king of Judah, and that son became known as Herod the Great. And in Matthew chapter 2, we are told that under the rule of Herod the Great, Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. It's a lot, isn't it? And even just an abridgment, that's probably the most intense mini-series we're ever going to experience. Do you know that the region of Palestine historically, the area where the nation of Israel sits now, do you know that this is the most fought over region in the entire world? Do you know that the city of Jerusalem in particular is the most fought over city? According to some historian accounts, the city of Jerusalem has been captured, pillaged, ravaged, burnt, and destroyed at least 27 times. Now, as we hear that history, let me ask you to do something. Would you emotionally connect with the people living that out firsthand? Can you imagine what it would be like going to the Lord God, praying for deliverance, praying for him to send the deliverer he had promised? praying him to stop the invasion of, the four, of these foreign powers? And do you see why for many they felt that they were met with silence? Now, I've had the opportunity to study this period quite a bit. I got to initially study it back when I was in school And in preparation for this message, I got to do a lot of studying as well through scholarly reports, books, and writings. And as I look at this period, something that jumped out to me is that throughout this 400 years, there is a recurring theme. And that theme is this, Scripture. There is a recurring theme in the intertestamental period of Scripture. And here's what I mean no matter who was in power, no matter how much of the culture had decided to go a different way, there was always a group of God-fearing believers, whether a small group, a large group, or anything in between, that decided to hold on to the teaching and the authority of Scripture no matter what. And as I study this and I begin to ask the question, why? Why? their world around them is falling apart. You could say their world is literally going to hell around them. And yet they're holding on tightly to the written word of God. And I began to realize why. See, for everybody else, they were abandoning the word of God because they felt that God was being silent. But to these believers, they held on to the word of God because they realized that through the word of God, they didn't experience silence, but they experienced the active voice of god in their lives the experience is speaking the experience is leading they experience even in the most tumultuous of circumstances hope trust in that god was at work in power and it's amazing because we see this throughout these 400 years and we see this again at the dawn of the new testament See, as we look at the religion that the Pharisees, by Jesus' time, had become the major religious powers and leaders at the time, their religion, by and large, was lifeless. It was about tradition. It was about rules. It was more about their word than it was about the word of God. But yet there was still a population of God-fearing believers that held on to the scriptures. Michael mentioned John the Baptist, one of my favorite biblical characters of all time. When we are introduced to John, he is with a group of people and what are they doing? They are celebrating and reconnecting with the written scriptures. Do you know that John the Baptist's role was to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus, for the coming of Messiah? And when you look at John's role, one of the primary ways he did that was by reconnecting people with the Holy Scriptures. And the reason why he did that, the message of John, the message of the Jewish people that held on the scriptures over these 400 years is that God is never silent in his word. His word is his active voice that leads us. And so the beautiful truth I mentioned at the top is that for some, that time was considered the silent years. But for others, because they held on to the word of God, that time was anything but silent. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack this truth a little bit further. So as you open up your note sheet, you've got a section titled Anything But Silent. And your fill in is this God is always speaking through His Word. And would you put a big box around the word always? God is always speaking through His Word. I mentioned earlier. That for many of us, if not all of us, Christ followers, there comes a time or there comes a season in which we feel like the voice of God is not in our life. There comes a time when we ask that tough question, God, are you not speaking to me? Why aren't you speaking to me? And I want to affirm you, if you've ever asked that question, that does not make you a horrible person, that also does not make you a horrible Christ follower, that makes you normal, because that's an honest question. But it's also a heartbreaking one, isn't it? For us to contemplate, is the voice of God no longer in my life? But the beautiful truth we see in these, quote, silent years is that the voice of the Lord has been given to us. The voice of the Lord is ever present in his holy scriptures, in his written word. See, if you think about it, there are many ways in which God talks to us. God speaks to us through the leading of the Holy Spirit in our life. God speaks to us through prayer. God speaks to us through worship. God speaks to us through wise counsel. Those ways are powerful ways in which the Lord communicates to us. But if you stop to think about the many ways in which the Lord communicates, many of them, if not all of them, have their foundation rooted in the way he speaks through Scripture. See, many times the Holy Spirit or the voice of the Lord in prayer is going to lead you back to truths found in scripture. Michael talks about this often that many of you have shared that you are praying to the Lord and he brings a verse that you didn't even know you had memorized in your head. He brings you to that truth. Many times when the Lord provides wise counsel in your life, they're speaking to you through the words of Scripture or affirming you to go back. Many times when you find yourself challenged with your sin, with the question of how do I move on from my sin, the answer is by looking at the character of Jesus, the model for my life. Many times when we gather and we worship and we sing and we raise our hands, the words we are singing were based in Scripture, if not flat out quoting scripture. See, the, script, the written word of God is his active voice, and it is the basis for all of God's communication in our lives. There in your notes, you'd have a couple quotes. The first is by one of my favorite authors of all time, Dallas Willard, in one of my favorite books of all time, a book called Hearing God. He states, the Bible expresses the mind of God, since God himself speaks to us through its pages. Thus, we, in understanding the Bible, come to share his thoughts and attitudes, and even come to share his life through his word. Scripture is a communication that establishes communion and opens the way to union, all in a way that is perfectly understandable once we begin to have experience of it. I mentioned that during those times, there was always a group of God-fearers that held on to the scriptures. This next quote talks about that. But in these dark days during which Palestine was a debatable land, spoiled by her warring foes, there, are always, there, are, there was always an election of grace who held tightly to the now-completed scriptures of the Old Testament Election of grace is a way to talk about a group of God's people, and they clung desperately to the forlorn hope of the coming deliverer. A way to paraphrase that quote, that for the people of God in their darkest moment, when they didn't know anything else, they had no answers, what they knew was that God's word is true, and that is where they needed to be. See, I mentioned at the top that when we look at this history, we see a cautionary tale We see what happens when people and groups and empires move away from the authority of Scripture. But I also mentioned at the top that these times of perceived silence are an opportunity. See, there are times in our lives when we are gonna go to the Lord and ask for something and he will respond specifically to what we're asking for or specifically to our needs. But there are times in our life when the Lord will not respond in that specific way, not because he is silent, but because he is giving us an opportunity Unity to deepen our understanding of the truth He's already revealed. See, the perceived silence is an opportunity for the voice of God in Scripture, and I love this word to penetrate our lives in a new and deeper way. It's an opportunity to grow. See, let me give you a couple examples of how this looks in our lives. The first example is let's say you're in a season in your life in which you're asking the Lord to give you answers or to give him direct or to give you direction. Maybe you're facing a big unknown in your life, whether it's your career or a big life decision. Maybe you're facing a hardship or a hurt and you don't know how to move or you're looking for a provision financially in another way and you feel like the lord is not specifically answering you and you wonder what do i do then well listen to how the voice of the lord through scripture speaks to you in that situation this isn't on your note sheet but write the reference romans 8:28 and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose See, what is the voice of the Lord saying through Scripture to you in those situations? That the Lord may not be specifically giving you the answer you seek, but the Lord Lord has not finished working on your behalf. In fact, the Lord is always at work for the good of his people. Rest in that. Trust in that. That is the message of the voice of the Lord. Let me give you a second example. Let's say you go to the Lord because you're wounded, because you're hurt, because you're depressed, and you're asking for relief, you're asking for healing. You find yourself in a situation like the Apostle Paul did in the New Testament, where he says, three times, I prayed for the Lord to remove this thorn from my flesh. And just like the Apostle, we find ourselves in a situation in which the Lord doesn't So how does his voice in Scripture speak to us then? Write this reference down, Matthew 28, 20. The very last thing Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For those of you that are wounded, that are hurt, The voice of the Lord is telling you clearly that in your pain, in your suffering, he is by your side with you. Write this other reference down, Revelation 21.4. Talking about the end times, talking about the gift of heaven, he writes that Jesus, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, in our pain, in our suffering, we sometimes wonder, am I condemned? Is this the rest of my life? Is this my eternity? And the message through the voice of the Lord through his scripture is he's reminding his people, though we may suffer for a little while, remember that the Lord will make this pain a forgotten memory one day, that the Lord has not stopped working for your behalf and is preparing a place in which all of this will go away. And a third example, let's say you go to the Lord because you're dealing with fear, whether because of the examples I've mentioned or because of anything else, because life is pretty scary most of the time, isn't it? And you're asking for the Lord to help you with your fear or to help you with your anxiety, whether it's a specific fear or in general, and hear what the voice of the Lord says through his scriptures. One of my favorite verses on the subject, write down the reference, Joshua 1, 7 to 9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Take courage because the Lord your God is with you. And through these words he gave Joshua, where is he? In his word. With us, always through his living and active word. And so we see that through scripture, we are never in a time of silence because we always have the living, breathing, and active voice of God. And so to truly see Scripture in this light, what we need to do is we need to take a radical shift in our mind from how we perceive Scripture now to how God sees Scripture himself. And so to begin that dialogue there in your note sheet, the next section, there's a section titled A New Way to Listen. And your fill-in is this. Listening begins... With a transformation in how we see Scripture. Listening begins with a transformation in how we see Scripture. And would you put a big box around the word transformation? Let me give this illustration. The truth of the matter is, there are many Christ followers that view God's holy word, that view the Bible as I view math. All right? Now, let me ask you this. Back when you were in high school, did you have a class you just absolutely dreaded to go to every day? Now, not dreading it because you had just broken up with someone in that class, or not dreading it because you were convinced your teacher is the devil themselves but dreading it because of the subject matter, because it was something that just didn't click. No matter how hard you tried, you're like, I just don't get this, and that is my lifelong story with math. Now hear me clearly. I do not, I love and appreciate math. I do not want to wipe it from the face of the earth. I have great friends that have been prosperous from math. For whatever reason, it does not click in my teeny tiny brain. And I've tried and I'm frustrated because I'm bright in a lot of other areas. I have been taught fractions hundreds of times. (laughs) And if I didn't have Google, I don't know where I would be today. And so because of that, my view of math is very low and very poor. If you ask me, Dre, how do you feel about math? My response is, <laughs> gross. When I, had to, when I took my last math class in college, I, took a, I celebrated with a huge party. <laughs> I'm done with this. Now, the reason why I share this is because for many of us, that is our view of Scripture, So, I've talked about this from up here before. See, this is a value of mine because I see this as being a significant problem, particularly for the Church of America. And that's that there are many, many people who are Christ followers who have a very low view of scripture. And so what I mean by that is that we view scripture as optional, meaning there are many Christ followers that believe that they can have a growing and thriving relationship with God by doing everything but being in his holy word themselves. See, these are people who are committed They'll commit to coming to church regularly. They'll commit to financially giving and funding the mission of God. They'll commit to something amazing like life groups and engaging in that community. These are Christ followers that commit to serving in a ministry. Oh, come and pray and engage in worship, and they love it. But then if you ask them how they feel about Scripture, would you engage in Scripture? the response is usually unequivocally, yuck. Why would I do that? I like all the other stuff. It's fun. It's more appealing. It's not as hard. I don't understand Scripture. It doesn't speak to me. It doesn't do anything for me. So again, we have created this version of, quote, Christianity in which we can grow and thrive apart from the holy scriptures of God. And this is what this reveals in our lives. If we have a low view of scripture, it is because we do not see scripture as God's active voice in our lives. If we have a low view of scripture, it is because we do not see it as God's active voice in our lives. Because I guarantee you, if we did, we would be sprinting towards it every day. Now, I don't say this to condemn, but I say this to explain the reality of where we're starting from. See, going back to the intertestamental period, let's go back to Antiochus. See, what was one of his methods to destroy the people of God was to separate them from the voice of God found in scriptures. That is an evil act. And in fact, it didn't originate with him. That act of separating God's people from his word is originated by the devil himself. We see it from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden as he distorts the word of God. And to this day, the devil's aim to separate us from God is by separating us from God's active word through Scripture. See, as we devalue scripture, as we continue to set it aside, what we are doing is we are leaving the active and present voice of the Lord in our lives. And so to the devil, what that means is that makes us easier to corrupt, that makes us easier to conquer, that makes us easier to control, and that makes us easier to destroy. So if you think about it, Who stands to gain the most from the people of God devaluing Scripture? The enemy himself. And so the reality, church, is this. If the church, and I mean that in every definition of the word, the church at Rocky Peak, the national church, the global church, but especially you, the individual church of God, because Christ follower, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are God's church. If the church is going to not only survive, but if the church is going to survive, it will do so by standing strongly on the foundation of the authority and the power found in the scripture of God, because it is his word. And so, as we see a devaluing of Scripture that happens in our world, Christ followers, what we need to do is rise up and fight back. And how we rise up and fight back is we reclaim Scripture in our lives. We reclaim a holy view, a high view of Scripture. We fight back against the evils of our world by no longer running from the voice of God, but running towards it. We need a holy transformation in how we view Scripture. And I'm not going to get there on my own. I need the Lord to change how I view Scripture. See, just as I couldn't save myself, I needed Jesus to save me from my sins, to restore me. I need Jesus to restore my view of the word in his life. I need to pray an amazing prayer that says, Jesus, teach me how to see Scripture. Jesus, teach me how to love Scripture as you do. And you know what happens is he comes into our lives and he begins to make a radical shift. We begin to go from seeing scripture as optional to joyfully essential. And we are given a new spiritual filter and we see scripture in three new ways. And briefly there in your note sheet, I want to talk about what those are. The first fill-in is this. We see scripture as life. There I put, one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active. For the word of God is living and active. See, no other written word in all of history or, will, or for all of eternity can claim to be living and active but because God is present where his word is. When I am in scripture, I am in the presence of Jesus himself. And if you think about your friends and your loved ones, when you are in their presence, what are you doing? You're deepening relationship. You are getting to know them on a new level. You are learning from one another. You are sharpening each other. You are growing with one another. When I am in Scripture, I am with the source of my life, Jesus, and he is continually giving me life for that to overflow into the others I come in contact with. The second way that I see Scripture through this holy transformation is passion. I see it as a source of passion. See, we experience true passion by living life where we were meant to live it in the presence of God. See, what's amazing about the story of Scripture is when you dig into it, what you see is the passion of God for us, for his People, this unfathomable love. And what happens is God's passion for us begins to fill our lives, and that begins to overflow into everything we say and do. And now we are filled by God's passion. We become more passionate about serving him. We become more passionate about deepening our relationship with him. We become more passionate about his word. I put there an excerpt from Psalm 119, Hear the passion of this author as they describe the scriptures. Oh, how I love your law. Again, the written scriptures. I meditate on a day, all day long. You, your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I kept my feet from, your, from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your loss for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp from my feet, a light on my path. That's beautiful, isn't it? And we gain that by being in the presence of God through scriptures. And the third change that happens is we see scripture as our source of growth. Our God is our perfect father. And as his sons and daughters, his hopes and his desires are for us to grow and prosper, for us to succeed for us to live the life he has created us to be. And so he teaches us how to do that just like any good father would. He teaches us how to avoid destruction found in sin. And in his scriptures, we see the character of Jesus, the example we are given to live by. We see what is sinful and how to move away from it. See, as we dig into scriptures, we face a holy conviction, not because God is trying, not because God is trying to pin our face down in the mud, but because he sees so much more for your life that he wants to see you grow. There are times in scripture where I look at it and it changes the way I talk to other people because I realize what's coming out of my mouth, whether it's truth or not, is not patient, is not gentle, it doesn't have respect. There are people that look at scripture and God speaks to them and goes, my view of sexuality, my view of success, my view of possessions, my view of substances, that is way off. I have been making that my God or that my fulfillment, but it's really Jesus and he's affirming that in scriptures. It's through scriptures that we are often led to a beautiful place of repentance, Again, so that we may be filled with the light of God and grow to become more like him. One of the most famous verses on this topic there in your note sheet, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed. Again, another way of saying it is living and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Once again, like I said earlier, when we allow God to come and transform our view of scripture, it takes it from being an optional accessory to a beautiful and a joyful essential for our lives. And so how do we begin to allow the Lord to begin this transformation in our lives? There are many ways, frankly, and the Lord will lead many of us along different paths along this. But what I want to do is I want to give you one practical and simple starting point. Now, for those of you, there are some of you in here that already have a beautiful relationship with the Scriptures, that you have found a way to engage with Scripture that works well with your wiring, and you are committed and engaged. And so for those of you, don't stop doing what you're doing. But for some of you that are in here, that you need a starting point, you need something to help you begin. I love this. And so on the back of your note sheet, there's a section titled, The Next Step. And the starting point is this, pray the scriptures. And what this is asking is to start small, is to take a verse, a few verses at a time, to stop and meditate on them, to ask some key questions. Because this is the word of God, because this is true, how does that impact my life? but not just to ask those in solitude, but to say, God, let your Holy Spirit speak to my life specifically through these words. I wish I could say this method is my genius, but it's not. It again comes from that book I mentioned with Dallas Willard. Let me have him explain it there on your note sheet. Come to your chosen passage as a place where you will have a holy meeting with God. Read a small part of the passage and dwell on it. So maybe you're going through a devotional. Maybe as we start the Matthew series, you're just following along with some of the verses we cover each week in teaching. Read a small part of the passage and dwell on it, praying for the assistance of God's Spirit in bringing fully before your mind and into your life the realities expressed. Again, it's allowing God to speak through it. Always ask, what is my life like since this is true? And how shall I speak and act because of this? You may wish to turn the passage into a prayer or a praise of request. And so imagine that. That is so doable and so profound at the same time. Where you take a small section of scripture, you meditate on it, you say, Holy Spirit, show me your truth for my life through this. You stop and you ask those key questions. How is my life different? How is it going to be different because this is true? How does this change how I think, how I act, how I treat others, where my priorities are? And the Lord will speak to us. What I love about this method as a starting point is that we can do it anywhere, anytime. You can do it in the morning. You can do it in the evening. You can do it at your lunch break. You can do it in the car on your way to work or on your way to school or as you're dropping off the kids. You can do it as you're walking the dog or taking out the trash. You can do it on a run or on a hike or when you're sitting in the garage. You can do it anywhere. And to get us started, I want to give us the opportunity as we close this time of teaching to do it here together. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, what I am going to do <clears throat> is I am going to read a couple of powerful verses from Romans chapter eight. So hear the verse of the Lord over your hear the word of the Lord over your life. <clears throat> For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And with your eyes closed, just take a few short seconds and ask yourself, because this is true, because nothing will ever separate me from the love of God, how is my life different? How does this change how I, my thoughts and my actions? Take a few moments, seconds with yourself. Let's pray together. Father, your voice is active always. Father, you speak to us in many ways. But thank you that your word is oh your voice is always present through your written word through your scriptures. Father, thank you that we can always turn to your scriptures to hear you, to seek you, to be in your presence. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the words of the apostle in Romans 8 that we just read, that there is nothing in all of eternity that can separate us from the love of Jesus. Father, speak to every one of us individually through that word. Father, show us specifically how that is is impacting our lives currently. Father, show us how we can live that out with our family and friends and our loved ones. Father, teach us, strengthen us to live out that truth with our enemies and those we oppose. Father, we thank you for the gift that is your word. And as we close out this time of teaching, as we go into a time of singing, as we go into a time in which we receive our, your, we receive gifts and offerings for your mission, Father, we are thank you that you are, we thank you that you are teaching us to listen, to grow in a new way, that the voice of the Lord is always with us. Let us never forget that. Let us never become numb to that. In your son's name, all of God's people said, amen. Let's stand and sing together. The voice of the Lord is speaking to you. I hope today that as you leave this place, not because of me, but because of what the Lord did, I hope that you are given a new passion. I hope that you are given a new view of his holy scriptures. I hope that you are given a new initiative to go and connect with your precious Jesus. I hope as you go about this week that you see that as the Lord begins transforming you through his voice found in scriptures, that you will know him more. That you will sense him in a deeper way in your life. That you will begin to experience life Passion and growth in a new way because we are never in the presence of God without being changed. And His voice and His presence are always found in His scriptures. Amen? So, as you leave this place, go with a fire, but go with a plan of action. Take initiative, rise up, reclaim Scripture, show the enemy that He is not won by holding on to the Word of God. If you would like to pray with someone before you leave this place, over to my right, your left, always as they are every week, is an amazing group of men and women from our prayer ministry that would love to pray with you. A quick apology, I would love to connect with you as I often do after service, but as soon as we're done, I'm gonna go back into quarantine for a while. But again, over the men and women over there take great care of you. Hey, next week, I really hope you can come and close out the service with us. See, one thing that's amazing about silence is not only is the Lord speaking through it, but the Lord can also redefine the need for silence in our lives. See, we live in a very loud and fast-paced world, and what we find often is, have you ever gotten to those points where you just need a moment to breathe, a moment to just take a breath and take it all in? Well, what we see is that the Lord can take silence and make it a key discipline in our growing lives. And we're gonna take a look at that through the biblical authors next week. Can't wait to see you. Have a great day.